This podcast was recorded on April 6th, 2018. The views and opinions expressed herein are of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. Okay, welcome to the Sherman Show. I'm sitting here today with my co-host Samuel Lau. Hey, hey. And we have a special guest from the outside world today, Pete Cicchini, who is the Global Chief Market Strategist at Canner Fitzgerald. Welcome, Pete. Well, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, well, thanks for making the trek out here from New York City. What would you say the temperature differential was when you got on the flight at JFK this morning versus LAX? When you I'd landed? say about 30 degrees. 30 degrees. And it was, it was very dreary in New York, as is often the right. case. Right. So it's about, it's about 95 degrees in New York then? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You had some snowfall out there recently. <laughs> you had some snow out there recently too, right? Yes, we did. I think to start off the month of April, we had about four or five inches even in the city, which That's is amazing. astounding. What, wasn't astounding. it? Was it been like four nor'easters in like five weeks or Absolutely something? Absolutely odd. Yeah. Yeah. Throughout the month of, month of March, I think I've been through about five pairs of shoes because I refuse to wear galoshes. Yeah. I have to say, I was, I was out there for one of the supposed nor'easters about yeah. a month or two back, and I have to say I was unimpressed because I was in the city, and at that point, it just seemed like a little bit of sprinkling rain, so it just I, I, I don't really give too much credence to the nor'easters. They're always overbuilt. I mean, it's a huge buildup, and it's always a letdown. Well, the thing is, remember, you may not know, but Sam grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, uh-huh. and so everything is it's all about context. relative to Madison. So, right. so right. let, let's get into it. So you're talking about snow, nor'easters, weather differentials. It seems like intraday volatility, right? So before we start your background, I really want to yeah. talk about this, because today we're recording this. It's April 4th. We had this you know, huge announcement from China mm-hmm. that we're going tit-for-tat in trade wars, causing volatility in the markets. But something's changed a little bit in the market. So I want to talk about that first, and then, let's go, and then we'll rewind the clock to say why we should really respect your opinion and all this stuff on your background. But talking about weather vol, let's talk about you know, just market volatility, these swings we've seen intraday over the last two months. How do you think about that as a strategist, how to prepare your clients? Did you ignore it? Does it tell you something? What are you thinking about right now? Well, it's it's interesting because much of the time, credit markets will tend to lead equity markets. And so when you say you, credit, we're talking about fixed income credit. Fixed income credit, high, high yield in particular, since it's most equity-like of, of credit products. That has not been the case this time. There's been a real disconnect between especially index volatility markets and almost every other asset's volatility whether it be currencies, whether it's fixed income, whether it's high yield, or whether it's sovereign debt. There's been a massive disconnect. And I think part of the reason for that is, and it's confounding to clients, by the way, this is probably the number one question that I get all the time. Why is that? Why is vol so high, but credit hasn't moved? Currencies aren't really moving all that much. It's picked up a little bit because of this trade war idea. But, yes. but, but still, it's still historically low. Right. On a relative basis. And when you run the regressions, for example, versus high yield, you're, you're three and a half to four standard deviations from what the model would predict equity market volatility versus credit vol or even credit spreads ought to be. Sounds like a bad model. 
Could be. <laughs> Could be. You can certainly question the model, right? It may be, Maybe the, a new model is required. Maybe we need to look at it differently. It's been a regime shift of some sort. But let's assume for a second that it still is a relevant way to think about the world. Yeah. I think one of the big changes has been the, the market structure and positioning of volatility players. Volatility has been treated much more like an asset class into this cycle than ever before. And what I mean by that is, and I, and I see this on a regular basis with clients, I get calls from people, well, we're, we're a fund and we're, we're thinking about implementing a short vol strategy. And that short vol strategy is designed to garner yield when spreads are low and interest rates are low, right? Instead of tight and interest rates are low. Is it a good idea for us to do that? Without opining on whether it's a good idea or not, I can tell you what, it, what what that's telling me is a lot of people are interested in this strategy. A lot of people are employing this strategy. That suppressed vol for an awfully long time. Right now, as especially 2017, one of the lowest volatility realized volatility experiences on record. Precisely, especially, especially in electronic trading and you know tighter bid offer and the likes. I mean, it definitely was a different regime. No, no doubt. As low as we've ever seen it really ever. As, as long as it's been recorded, realized volatility on the S&P was as low as it had ever gotten. And so why is that? Well, okay, we have these volatility sellers. Very important. Why did vol pop the way it has without other asset classes responding in the same way? Well, one possible explanation for this, and I don't know if it's the only explanation, but one possible explanation for this is, and anecdotally we see it, is that the pop in volatility was in part caused by by volatility sellers who were forced to close out their short volatility positions and so they were buyers of vol because they were because they and the markets generally speaking are structurally short volatility as opposed to the normal cycle where people get long volatility because they're afraid something bad is going to happen and or the because dealers are inherently the short ones or correct you know, force the hedging right correct so what that also tells you is we had this prolonged period of low volatility Maybe it will be followed by a prolonged period of higher volatility because we've really only seen the first leg, which is short volatility participants closing out short positions, and we haven't even seen buyers to open natural buyer, come in. Right, right. So this is like the whole idea of volatility clustering, right? You, you read this in a, in a lot of the academic papers is that low periods of volatility are followed by it, but ultimately it begets higher volatility, which then causes this other other regime. So I do find that very interesting since you, you talk about suppressed yields could have been leading people that direction. Because as we look at it, there's, there seems to be this, at least contemporaneously as I'm looking at the market, you know, when we saw the short vol funds get in trouble in early February, we had this, you know, big shift upward in volatility. It's kind of interesting that yields were pressing higher. And so I, I like the idea, or I'm sympathetic to the idea of perhaps it was the low yields, the low income. It's looking for other ways of income. But now, today, we have a one-year T-bill that yields north of 2%. Right. Right? So perhaps it is some of that you know, yield coming back to the market that really was a catalyst here. Like I found it interesting. It's why we didn't go the traditional way of talking about background mm-hmm. first because I don't want to lose the thought. But the idea that credit usually leads this thing, well, maybe it was a little differently because now we're getting to where you can actually get yield by not taking a lot of risk. Absolutely. I agree. And we and coming into the year, you and I have spoken about this, we came into the year very concerned about short rates and what short rates were going to do. And we were both very focused on two-year volatility here in the U.S., as well as Schatz volatility, the German two-year. And, of course, what we frankly did not quite expect was the move we've seen in LIBOR. Right. Okay, which is important, which has obviously also been accompanied by an increase in 
commercial paper rates. So that's, I think, another reason is the cost of capital goes up, and it's a better alternative, frankly, for investors. You get more equity market volatility through two different through two different mechanisms. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. That seems to be the talk, you know, lately is just the rise in LIBOR, especially LIBOR OIS. It's what are some of your thoughts about the, you know, the cause behind that? Is it just the the typical fear in bank credit that's driving LIBOR up, or are there other issues? Uh, well, maybe before you answer that, you could actually define those terms because we have a big different viewership out in the Sherman Show. I think we're up to 15 viewers now, and not all of them know what <laughs> LIBOR OIS is. So uh, that's that's <laughs> that's very modest of you to say that. I know you have a very big, very large viewership. You know, LIBOR is the rate at which banks are willing to lend between themselves over various durations. And LIBOR minus OIS is essentially a proxy for a risky rate between banks versus what central banks might lend to one another or to banks. So, so the OIS is very more similar to like a Fed funds rate, that's right? Correct. So, that's correct. So that's right. kind of like a lot of people call it like the TED spread too, like the treasury. Correct. Spread. Okay. Correct. So, but we, we've more focused now instead of TED spread. Most people look at LIBOR, LIBOR OIS. So that's right. with that background, thanks, Sam, for you know, bringing in the, the jargon. You could tell us what that's telling you, telling you as a strategist and how to think about the marketplace today. Well, it's interesting. It used to be that you could look at LIBOR OAS as a as a measure of stress in the inter interbank lending market. That changed after the financial crisis because the Fed extended swap lines, as you know, mm-hmm. and they were able to suppress that spread pretty effectively. Now, more recently, we've seen it go up. I think not because of systemic financial stress, but rather because of nuances to the credit markets in the United States, specifically. T-bill issuance that has accelerated because of fiscal policy deficits. I mean, look, we, in, had, we had a quarter of a trillion dollars issued in one week. Correct. The know, biggest T-bill issue right. ever about a month ago. Exactly, exactly right. But also in the context of tighter monetary policy on the short end of the curve. So those two things together to me are the, are the two primary factors. Others have talked about repatriation effects and so forth. I'm not really sympathetic to that argument. I really think it's a combination of Fed raising rates, plus deficits too late in the cycle leading to that effect. Right. So I've heard also an explanation of commercial paper. What do you, what do you think about CP really doing that? I, I think that's a symptom rather than a cause. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's talk about symptoms versus causes. How did you get in this business? You know, Tell us a little bit about yourself. You just have to always start off, but weather volatility just gets me excited, and so I, I jumped in quickly. But how do you become a, a chief market strategist? Like, What's the career path? How, how did it work out for Pete? There was no career path. It, it, it was literally just freestyle the whole way. I came out of a liberal arts college called Haverford College where I played lacrosse, not really knowing what I wanted to do, so I went to law school. I realized I didn't really want to be a lawyer, <laughs> yeah. so I went into banking. Okay. And then so you went from one hated profession to correct, another. Correct, correct, correct. I, I, I was, you hate the profession, but people no, have yeah, negative yeah, correct, views. Yeah. Correct, Which one correct. gets more hate, in your opinion, though, having lived on both sides, right? I think lawyers probably get more hate than bankers. But but bankers will get more hate than lawyers at a certain point as yeah, well. I think during the financial crisis, no they one, got no one more was hate. focused on the lawyers That's at right. All. That's right. And the lawyers were making a lot more money back then. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I did I did employ my, my legal skills as a consultant for about four and a half years and then after the banking experience. And then someone I met while I was in banking started a hedge fund in the late 90s. I went back to business school at Columbia. We hit it off when I was in banking and he hired me as an analyst. 
with the, the law degree, obviously I was well suited to reading indentures and doing things like that. So I, I was put in the, in the distress fund where I resided for about eight years, eventually running a slug of capital at what became Mellon Financial because okay. the small fund okay. had been purchased by Mellon, which in turn got purchased by Bank of New York. When that happened, I ended up running my I own know, hedge fund for about, about three years. And that was during the financial crisis. So we were a small fund. And while our returns were just fine, thank you, running the business was a lot more difficult than I had expected, and that's how I ended up at It's Canada hard Fitzgerald. to attract new capital and, and kind of these stolen yeah. Even if you have good returns, it's like – Correct. You know, it's, it's that fear and loathing that sits in the marketplace. Yes, and there's a great Bernie Madoff story in there, which I'll tell you offline. Okay. We don't have the extended Sherman show out there, so, uh, <laughs> so uh, you'll have to run into Pete to get that story as well. I, I found it interesting you said that you know, being a legally trained – that you know you had this ability to read. You've been working on the legal side, so you got stuck with indentures. I remember when I first started working, my first position. You know, I was a, I was a math major. The reason I chose math is I didn't like to read as much. You know, yeah. and I remember just being overwhelmed originally. Like, there's so much reading going on. This is like when email starting in corporate. I'm like. It's so much reading to go through all this stuff. And, you know, I just don't think it was really suited to my skill set. Now, you know, you don't think anything about it, but right. it was definitely different. So, so let's get back into the markets, too. You put out weekly notes out there in the marketplace. It's called Theta Thursday. Yeah, that's um, our weekly. Yes, yeah, correct. Well, how'd you come up with that? Theta Thursday. Maybe you can explain that. I, li- I like the the alliteration there, but how'd you come up with that? Well, well, there there was an idea that as you go into a weekend, people become concerned about what their theta or decay profile is in being long options. Okay. And so the idea was on Thursday, we would do a profile of volatility for the week and help people manage their decay into the weekend. Yeah, I, think I love yeah. it as a, as a quant yeah. nerd. Yeah. You know, yeah. Cause, it's cause fun theta stuff. is the option Greek for the time decay value That's right. option, right? Correct. Yeah. So I, I would say what I always like, the I'll take the other way around bro, as we call it, right? Your mm-hmm. side of that, uh-huh. and that's the one thing I like about being a fixed income investor is when you leave work on Friday, you're long the carry, right? Absolutely, because the markets aren't open, so you just have this natural behavior that. So it's the opposite; it's the negative decay. Absolutely, and that takes us back to where we started. In fact, because you can think about optionality and credit, they're connected, right? Because when you're long credit, to some extent, you're short a put. You're short a put that's struck at a company's the face value of a company's debt. So if that company goes bankrupt, they can put the assets to you, and that generally then becomes the equity in the new company, right? Mm-hmm. So there is that conceptual relationship between credit and equity vol, which is actually something we're very, very focused on. And Merton Scholes obviously yeah. did a lot of work on that. I'm sure you're well familiar with. Another Nobel laureate. Yes, yeah. correct. So I, I think yeah, that was another. That's we talk a lot about that in Theta Thursday as well. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's interesting you say that too, because you see, you know, it used to be MA Monday too, but, you know, during the crises, it becomes bankruptcy Monday. Yeah. Right? It's the time where you actually have enough time to organize everything because the markets aren't moving. You know, there's secret meetings going on and yes. the like. So, you know, there, there's something really interesting about the off days in financial markets, and they do have implications, right? No doubt. Right. So let's talk about something we've been hearing a lot more is narratives, right? And I was recently with Professor Schiller, and he's put out this great piece. He's got a new book coming out called Narrative Economics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a great idea that the, the narratives aren't used in economic explanations, but we use them as society to do this as a whole. But there have been a lot of narratives in financial markets recently. Which ones have you been focused on? Which ones do you think are kind of right or, or leading 
the markets or do you agree with, disagree? What what are the popular narratives and, and where do you shake out on those today? Yeah, and I would also actually give a little shout out to, to, to Ben Hunt, yeah. who does great work on narratives as well. He's, and he's, he's a got friend a great, of mine. Great blog, great podcast. Yeah, uh, yes. They do, do a great job. They're Epsilon Texas. Theory. Epsilon Theory is, is the name of his yeah. podcast and his blog. Yeah. It was, is it with Salient? Is that the Salient? Salient, yeah. yeah. And they're, yeah. they're in Texas, yeah. I definitely follow his work. He does yeah, he, a lot of good he stuff. He does, he does. You know, there, there were a lot of popular narratives coming into, let's, let's just, if we don't mind, we take a step back in time. One of the popular narratives after the election was that we were going to get a lot of growth in inflation. And through fiscal stimulus, through President Trump's business-friendly policies, and that the yield curve is going to steepen as a result. And that was a narrative that we didn't buy back then. And that, and that, that played out for maybe a month, right? It, it did. It right? did. Yeah. It did. The 210 spread went to about 135 about two months after the election, and it's been flattening ever since. And I think while it's a comfortable narrative, and it's it's an easy one for the media to, to, to pick up on and talk about. And you can um, simplify it in four words, right? Correct. I mean, make America great again. Make right? America great. Growth and inflation, steeper yield curve, great for everybody, great for banks. But the problem with that that was, and this is often the problem with popular narratives, they're they're simplified to sound bites, and so they don't take into account more multivariate thinking around issues. And one of the things that that narrative did not take into account was what's happening globally with central banks and the impact that low global rates have on the long end of our curve. For example, Bank of Japan buying JGBs or the ECB buying buns, which helps – all these things help to anchor our long end. corporate debt. Or buying everything. Buying everything, like drunken sailors. So that was one – that is one narrative that we've been, we've been quite focused on. The other narrative I think that we've been focused on more recently – has been around trade and politics as the driver of financial markets. And I, you know, my team and I, and I've, I've got a great team back in New York, um, we've really been focused more on the cost of capital and short rates. As I start, we started out talking a little bit about why we were, I think, you know, one of the few teams to be somewhat tactically bearish in the beginning of the year was on that short rate volatility as an important offset to uh, anything that was more of a political consider it was more of a political consideration, mm-hmm. um, and so for us the narrative that it's all about politics and it's all about uh, you know policy while obviously important while those things are obviously important to sentiment there are other more important and more subtle sort of nuanced things like short rates that matter more. Yeah. Well, um, another thing that it's it, that I've been watching and. You know, we still think there's still some hints of it, but it seems to be losing momentum is inf- the inflation narrative. And I, there, I definitely can look at it from the marketplace and see sentiment had shifted. Probably if I had to point to it, maybe December 22nd of last year as a tax yeah. policy went through, which a bad acronym by the TCGA. It, it, yes. doesn't, it doesn't flow. No. MAGA works, TCGA, not, <laughs> not a good narrative or not a good acronym, I should say. But we've seen the data disappoint. It's not like it's fell off a cliff or mm-hmm. anything. How are you guys thinking about inflation right now? Yeah, I, I think I think inflation again, perfect example of a more nuanced narrative that involves global forces, right? So, two percent inflation makes makes good sense to me, but I don't see a real acceleration above and beyond that level for a number of reasons. The first is globalization. And globalization, and obviously this is what tariffs are to some extent designed to combat, right? right. Because globalization has has positive impacts and also has negative ones. But globalization obviously allows us to import low labor prices right. through 
the export of capital into lower labor jurisdictions. Wait, isn't that what we call a trade deficit? Yes. No, okay. You're correct. I, I keep joking uh, with the president yeah. about trade deficit. Yes. It's, it's not as bad as it sounds. No, and it's not $500 billion with China either. I don't know where we get that <laughs> yeah. number. But anyway, that's another – that's a, maybe a different it's conversation. Rounding up. Yeah. Rounding up. Yeah. Rounding yeah. up. There's no fact-checking. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Fake news. Yeah. So, so, you know, there's globalization. There are also a number of other factors. There's a lack of productivity in developed economies. Right? We, we have productivity growth in emerging market economies, but, but the data doesn't bear out a lot of productivity growth in developed economies. And without productivity growth, it's difficult to get wage inflation, which in turn is important for overall levels of inflation because right. you need a, a wage price well, spiral. Right. I always say there's, there's two ways to get money. You either have to earn it through earnings, which are wages or income through mm-hmm. investments, or you got to do it the good old American way and borrow it. That's right. And when you have high debt, high amounts of leverage, it's a little tough to keep borrowing. That's right. right. That's right. absolutely right. And if so, so if you don't have the ability to borrow and invest, you have to earn it. And if you're not getting, if you if you're not producing more, it's difficult for you to demand more of your employer, right? And especially in the kinds of jobs we're creating, they're not necessarily high-skilled jobs in a lot of cases. So you have really this bifurcated labor market where you have massive shortages on one side because people don't have the skills to demand the labor. Technology, programming, computer science. Correct. You know, those are the ones where we're seeing a lot of wage inflation. I'm going to call it wage growth. Yeah. Right? But but the same thing. It is that bifurcation of the – there is a small pocket there. And and again, it's just a mismatch of labor and skills, right? Correct. And even things like transportation. No, No one wants to be a truck driver. Construction. There's this weird bifurcated market. So without productivity growth, difficult to get wage inflation. Without wage inflation, difficult to get over mall inflation. And then I think I think the third issue, which is a little bit a little bit more opaque, and we've written a lot about it, is this idea that frankly, when global central banks keep the cost of capital low and they compress or suppress the term premia mm-hmm. in the yield curve, that leads to overinvestment, especially in emerging markets. And so while I think arguably for a very long time in the U.S. we haven't seen a lot of CapEx and it was sort of underinvestment here in the U.S., you could not say the same of places like China or India or even Brazil in recent years, right. which has started to, to invest. And so what that has done – they had the World Cup, you know. There's, there's reasons they, they, too, yeah, I, I, Then they built a lot of roads down there. I was down there several times and lots of roads to nowhere in Brazil. But in China in particular, our view is they're not taking capacity out the way the popular narrative suggests that they are. And as a result, what happens is if you have a factory that you've invested in because you've had this low cost, global cost of capital, and it's at 75% production, you don't need to build more when demand comes in. You simply turn on that productive capacity, which you're able to carry because your hurdle rate for investment was so low, so low right, yeah. right? So it doesn't spur that 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 investment, So and it doesn't beget higher prices. Right. But So let's go back to the narrative. What, what I hear from a lot of people, it's Amazon that's destroying the world, right, because it's low cost. But Amazon's not really the low cost provider. They're really just a conduit, a lot of things. You go on Amazon today and you go buy it. A lot of it's not sold by Amazon, right? And so people talk about it's Amazon doing it, but, but it sounds like to me you're blaming the central bankers here. I think, I think blame's a harsh word. <laughs> I see the look on your face, so maybe blame's a harsh word. But. Well, I, I think, again, you have a wide audience. You know, They could be listening. 
Yeah. Okay. Um, fair enough. Fair enough. So, so uh, no, I th- I think again, it's it's a it's a complex mosaic of causal attribution, right? And but central banks, to some extent, do bear that. That's the whole idea of this low neutral rate. There's a feedback mechanism there. It's 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 somewhat circular, right? Right. It exists because of them. Right. Well, also, you, and you that forces to, them to keep rates low. Right. Well, you talk about the a lower neutral rate, which what that really means is is that the ultimate target rate for Fed funds policy will be lower in the long run than we have seen historically. And so you and I have chatted in the past mm-hmm. about the nominee for the new position at the New York Fed to Governor John Williams, right? Yes. Now becoming a, a permanent voting member because uh, New York Fed's the one that doesn't have to rotate. They always have the vote. What do you think that implication is for Fed fund policy? Do you, or how do you interpret that? Because I think of him as an R star, a neutral rate kind of guy yeah. out there. That's the, the acronym for it or the symbol for it. What do you think the implications are for interpreting Fed policy? I mean, he's just shifting from San Francisco to New York, but the New York Fed is, is a different beast, right? Yeah, I, I agree. It's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out because obviously Powell is a real pragmatist. Versus Williams, Williams really ac- is an academic, academic right. who right. studied under John Taylor at Stanford, I believe it was. Right. A student of Yellen, who's a student of Bernanke. Correct, Lee, correct. Of, somewhat of, incestuous, right. perhaps. Yeah. But um, the status quo thing more, too, which markets like status quo. They don't like change in general, right? Yes, I think he could be an interesting offset to fears around Powell not having that academic background, given that he's an expert in, neut- in the neutral rate and the academics behind it and the Taylor rule and all, and all these other things. The one thing that is interesting is that uh, – the New York Fed is a very market-oriented regional Fed. Correct. Right, and they conduct the open market operations, and they do they do all the pol- they, they do the execution. Of the they policies, implement right. policy, and Mr. Williams is on record as saying that he thinks that central banks have been too concerned with what Wall Street is doing or thinking, or what markets are doing and thinking. And so, I'm not sure I interpret that as a callousness, but it's interesting. So, interesting state. So let's transition the other way. What do you think about the new chairman so far, Mr. Powell? Well, I think he's demonstrated what all new chair people demonstrate, which is probably an excess of candor early on, which spooks the market. And I remember they, that from Ms. Yellen. Correct. Right? Her, first, her first press conference, she got a little loose-lipped. She got very tight and very toe-the-line. I may say exactly the things that are in the written prepared statements, right? Exactly, and and over time she became much more measured. Yep. So I don't think we can. I think I don't think we can pass judgment early. So I, I you know, I funny that the day he was reserve judgment. Yeah, what was it? The the high in rates on the tens and thirties both this year were the day that he had testimony in front of Congress, right? Indeed. So it it is it's interesting that you, you note that observation. I want to shift real quick to the equity markets too, because. As we've seen, you know, we keep hearing this word correction, you know, this this very precise 10% decline from the tops, even though we were up over 10% at one point in the year, too. So equity markets are kind of flat to slightly down at this point in time. When I look at what's going on in the equity market, it's, it doesn't seem to be like this ripple across all sectors. And what I've been noticing is that the darlings, the things that were the leaders, the fangs, the tech stocks, have been the ones that have suffered, but they've suffered the most, but it doesn't seem to be dragging the entire market with them. So I pose two questions here. One is, is this a change in leadership, which is typically good for markets, right? When you get a new leader, they can pull us back up to highs. Or should we be concerned by what's going on from the fangs? Because they have a little different problem. Some Mm -hmm. cybersecurity, in other instances, it's debt. Will Netflix ever be profitable? Same things could be said about Tesla, although right. not a fang. But th- these things that were the darlings are seen to be coming under a little more criticism. 
So is this a good thing for market? Is it a bad thing? Does it signal? How are you, how are you thinking about positioning the equity book of business today? Well, you know, I, I think the, the sell-off in tech is certainly emblematic to some extent recently of a, of a change in sentiment, right? Breadth in equity markets had been narrowing considerably over the past few months. And, and all these studies about 70% of the return comes from four stocks or five stocks, right? Correct. All, all those great facts that people plot after the fact, right? And, and it's right. And, and it was, and it's accurate. It's accurate. Although it doesn't necessarily mean anything in real time because you can have very narrow leadership for a very long time and still have equity markets go up. I think, frankly, investors have become a bit more discerning. And as as news has come out on tariffs and trade or whatever the news du jour might be, the, the Mueller investigation, whatever it might be, investors are more easily spooked. And, and why is that? Well, because markets are, are a bit more fragile. It's a product of that structural positioning I mentioned earlier where there are a lot of investors positioned short vol. So that's mm-hmm. why vol looks so high, even with a mo- relatively modest sell-off. When you think about it, vol is very high for the relatively modest sell-off. But and you're talking the, about the price of vol. The price of vol. You're talking like that's a correct. or that's implied correct. vol from options. You're not talking about intraday volatility. No. This is like that. Okay. No. Yeah. The yeah. price of vol. Correct. Because exactly. intraday correct. volatility is pretty high. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Vol of vol is high. Yeah. 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 No, abs- absolutely. No. Good clarification there. But I think in terms of I think in terms of the the way investors are starting to think about equity ownership, they're becoming a little bit less forgiving of high valuations, and a little bit more appreciative of the risks. Especially, and I think I think this is really true that when the cost of capital goes up, especially for companies that are reliant on it, I think I think sophisticated investors take notice. If you're a small cap company that's reliant on either the commercial paper market usually large cap companies for commercial paper, but LIBOR-based financing, for example, and your cost of borrowing has gone up from 30 basis points to 230 basis points over two and a half to three years, well, that actually does affect your earnings power. Not only does it affect your earnings power through the interest expense that you're paying, but it's also also the cost of capital. But it's also how you can lever up the company, right? And so now you have to delever by definition through a higher cost of that finance. And how you discount the cash flows as well. So it's a double whammy. Right. So what does this say about the equity market now? I mean, like the, the bond market, if you look at the forward curves, you, you kind of do the interpolation, says three hikes this year, mm-hmm. we already have one under our belt. Bond market seems comfortable to say we're continuing to push up. And you know, I think we've lost a little data dependency in the Fed. The Fed's saying, look, we need it the other way around now. Instead of the data justifying the hikes, we need a rationalization not to continue the hiking path. And so as this continues to press up, LIBOR, uh, LIBOR continues to rise. Short term, the curve is implying that we're going to have more hikes. What does this say about the overall health of the equity market? Well, you know, I came into the year bullish in my in my outlook, and I thought we'd get up to about twenty eight sixty five, and pretty and, much and nailed that's, it. That's right? where that's what we. But that was that was pure luck, obviously. Yeah. But but as again, as short rate ball picked up, we got more we got much more conservative on equities, and we and we thought we would pull back in mid Feb, and kind of got lucky there as well. So we're more cautious and conservative now, given the backdrop for rates and how much specifically how much short rates have moved. That said, it takes some time for those effects to bleed through. Mm-hmm. So well, isn't, we, it, isn't always like a Fed fund policy takes like three to six months to get in the yes, economy. Yes, that's, that's it takes, right. It takes at least a month for your credit card to reset or your revolvers and things Ex- like that. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And even you know, if you look at the shape of the yield curve, a yield curve can be flat to inverted and equity markets can continue to rise for right. six to nine months. Yeah. So we're not 
we're not, you know, incredibly bearish here, but I do feel like it's going to be difficult for the equity markets to make new highs and that there are these competing forces now against equities that are meaningful, whereas we maybe didn't have those six to nine months ago. Well, like savings rates, right? If, if I can go out and, you know, I'm someone on a fixed income and I'm looking for some yield, I don't need to sell vol. I don't get to go into these high yield products or risk products. I can buy a one-year T-bill, go to the Fed's website or sorry, the Fed, Treasury's website, mm-hmm. go up, sign up and buy, buy a T-bill and get 2%. That's right. Right? I mean, money market accounts are paying in the mid-ones again. Those poor checking accounts are never going up. It feels like uh, the, the, the banks arguing the steeper curve yes. there. But it is, it's, it's really a relative game, right? And so it's, it's the other opportunity set. And so when you think about how Chairman Bernanke had described quantitative easing, he was saying creating the wealth effect. Well, by reversing the policy, mm-hmm. aren't we almost encouraging a savings effect? Yes, I mean I think that is part of it. It's it's the would you rather. It's the relative value trade, and as and as cash, frankly, becomes a more attractive risk adjusted asset class, I think I think that matters to equities. Yeah. Do. For equities too, I mean, as we're entering in reporting season, how much do the earnings have to do with this? Because if you think about since what late, let's call it third to fourth quarter of 2016, that's when we actually started to see some positive earnings come out of companies, and that carried into 2017, 20% type of of returns in the S&P. What is the impact of this, a little bit of a reversal or even slowing down on earnings on, on, on your outlook? Well, I think I think if I'm correct, and I didn't look at it today, but let's let's say the S and P on a trailing basis is trading at about 22 times, maybe a little over yeah, 22 right, yeah. times, something yeah. like that. Right. Start- ratio is more like 33, but, yes, but that's, that it, as I, as I've said, Professor Schiller is just about to learn about the tax cut plan, <laughs> right? Because the first quarter of earnings with the new tax regime that's will right. be in there, right? That's right. So, but there's still 39 because more of the quarters averaging effect of the yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. So, so you know, I think you, you've obviously got you've got earnings. But you also have PEs. And so 22 times the argument that I'm hearing more and more from equity market bulls is that I think we're at 17 times forward estimates. Yeah. But my counter argument to that is that I think earnings expectations and expectations for revenue growth are quite high. They're very high. And I mean, the, the gap between last year and this year, and when you look at the dollar base or percentage change, is one of the highest we've seen in, in, in roughly – before the crisis. Right? Correct. Yeah. So, so you know, if if those estimates come if those estimates come down, okay, that's sixteen times is going to go up. Right. Okay. Well, that's that's math as we call it around yeah. here. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right, I see Sam getting a little fidgety here. So let, let's give us one more question before we go into his favorite part of the show. And I think we need to ask about risk. Mm-hmm. What do you think is one of the biggest risks out there, either known or? something that you're thinking about that maybe we should put on our radar screen or or you'd encourage others to really think about as a risk to financial markets right now, where do you see a pocket? You know, people talk Bitcoin, people talk about gold. What what do you see as kind of one of the bigger risks out there? Well, I, I do think geopolitics is very important. And we've really sort of lost sight and focus around what is going on in Europe, especially with Russia. And I'm, I'm even just not, I'm not talking necessarily about Russian election issues, which is something that could actually. Did Putin win 125% of the vote? <laughs> yes. Like yeah. I, you know, so it's been well established, obviously, you know, Russia did not interfere with our election, of course. Right. But, but really what I'm talking about is Russia is reasserting its dominance in the world. And, you know, no one, no one talks or really writes about what's going on in Ukraine mm-hmm. or what the annexation of the Crimean Peninsula right. meant to actually 
Middle East security. Let mm. alone the supply of natural gas that he that Russia I say he Russia provides to That's Northern Europe, right? To Northern Europe and the pipelines that go under the Black Sea right. and the naval base at Sevastopol, which now enables him to project force into Syria and into, into other areas. And I think this is I think this is something that's very interesting, right? And I don't think it's today's risk necessarily. It's a it's a two to five year type of risk, but you're actually seeing a move globally towards acceptance of very strong handed leaders. Putin in Russia. Well, his neighbor to the south. Yes. She yeah. in China, yeah, exactly. Emperor for life, right? Yeah. Exactly. I He's, heard that President Trump thought that's a good idea. Maybe we should talk, implement that strategy. I mean, Deng Xiaoping spent his entire tenure trying to make democratic reform a part of the of the Chinese mentality, and now that's gone. Yeah. And, and really, no one has said overnight. a word about it. Overnight. Right. I mean, it wasn't something that was really talked about. It just kind of appeared. Or maybe I don't get enough Chinese newspapers, but it Correct. was something all of a sudden just kind of popped up, right? Yeah. So I think I think the loss of democracy amongst some of our trading partners is, is my biggest concern. And again, not a catalyst for equity market volatility tomorrow or even in three months, but something to watch very closely over the next several years. So it just brings up one thing. I'm sorry, Sam. I know you're fidgety there, but one more thing on that. So you talking about the strong-handed leaders. We're seeing, I think, I'd say it's a more of a shift towards more nationalization versus globalization. Mm-hmm. So we talked about the inflation side and the suppression. Maybe is that one of the catalysts out there? I mean, obviously the tariffs, that's what people get nervous about, but also just this nationalistic pride and, and getting rid of some of this globalization. Shouldn't that create a little more inflation, specifically wage inflation, price inflation everywhere, and maybe change some of the dynamics as well? I think so. I think that's actually a key point, right? And, it's, and, it's, and I think it's one of the reasons why this is one of my biggest risks. Because if you think about the, the move towards these, I can't call them populist moves necessarily, somewhat in Europe, but these moves to these strong-handed leaders who are looking to close their economies. I think it's more it, nationalist. It, I mean, national, national, the way you said it was, was it populism or nationalism, nationalism is the way you said it. Yeah, I think that's a good way. It's, it's, it's focused. I mean, and this is actually what the president did here. He said, make America great again. Correct. It was focus on yourself and blaming others for your you're not being better off is someone else's. It's because of someone else. And again, I, I don't know what the truth is here, but this idea, it's, it's a shift in the mindset, right? And that behavior just creates different patterns, right? The problem is, is that in open economies, in, in, a, in a global world, domestic-oriented policies don't work the same way they used to. Monetary policy is inefficacious, as efficacious. Fiscal policy is not as efficacious. Mm-hmm. But closing the doors uh, to your economy is not going to fix that because globalization has been the driver of growth right. and wealth creation. So it's this balance that I think we're on the verge of getting wrong. Okay. Well, I think that sounds like a risk to me. So, Sam, <laughs> why don't you kick it off with your segment? One more question. All right. One more question. This is not from me, yeah. but we had this question submission from one of our listeners. So one the of, email address is working. That is. Sherman Show at DoubleLine.com is working, and we're taking some of these questions here. So I'm going to give a shout-out to Brad C. I won't give out his last name, but Brad C. comes to us with this question. So what is the favorite lesson the market has taught you? He's looking at Pete, not me. Yeah, I'm looking at Pete here. <laughs> to be humble. All right. All right, perfect. So Kendrick Lamar quote there. <laughs> so with that, we're going to kick off the Sherman Says segment of the of the show. <laughs> and the rules here are, Pete, just for your, for your knowledge, is that I'm going to say a term, and with it, I'll get a response from you. 
I'll just say you can say whatever you want when you come back. First thing that comes to mind. First thing that comes back to mind. So I'm going to alternate with starting with Sherman first, and I'll pass it off to you, and then alternate from there on. Gotcha. So, Mr. Sherman, inflation. Show me. I should ask your last name, how to pronounce your last name. Chikini, I know how to yeah. spell it. I don't Ch- know how to say it. Chikini, yeah. Because I like to say it's a, t- it's a tough one. It's yeah. a tough one. Yeah. Mr. Chikini. Yes. Yield curve. Flatter. China. For life. <laughs> Saudi Arabia. In trouble. Two words. Equity vol. Here to stay. Commodities. Lower. Sports seems... You love to hate. Dodgers. <laughs> Guilty pleasure? Chocolate. <laughs> I like I like the inflection there. That's, that's a guilty <laughs> pleasure, <That's> obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Social media. Important. Boxing for charity. Painful. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Pete. That, that was a great show here. As always, you can find these shows out there on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, your favorite casting application. And as Sam mentioned, the email address is working, so we appreciate feedback. You can leave it for us at shermanshow at doubleline.com. One word, shermanshow at doubleline.com. We appreciate the feedback we're getting out there and look forward to bringing you another podcast guest very soon. Again, Pete, thanks for swinging by the Double Line offices here in L.A. Thanks for having me. It was a great time. Thank you. The audio presentation represents Double Line's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of Double Line. Double Line has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from Double Line, please contact media at doubleline.com. Neither Double Line nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore, including and respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. Double Line is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any double line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any double line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2018, Double Line Capital.